From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It can be expensive to hire a lawyer. That's why most people filing for divorce in Colorado go it alone. A new approach to family law, though, could change that. The people that are coming out of this program and getting qualified can really complement lawyers. There's always going to be some skepticism. This is something new. New is kind of scary sometimes. Using non-lawyers in certain cases. Plus, a Colorado filmmaker's journey from feeling lost between cultures to finding her identity. The things that held me back from like really participating and fully living my life were also the things that helped me back from making this film. We share a new episode of CPR's podcast, Kian Arwi, with May Ortega. Hi, I'm Seth Kent, and I donated a van to CPR. All we needed was the title and the keys. It was really great to be able to make a larger donation like that, where Evergreen members but at nowhere near that level. Uh, It will take us years to match that. But it feels really great to be able to give a really significant donation to CPR, and it feels like it's put to good use, so that's good too. It is super easy to donate your vehicle at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Many Coloradans who file for divorce don't use an attorney. Estimates are that 7 out of 10 separations are lawyerless. Cost is a big reason. But there can be pitfalls to going it alone, which is why an alternative is under development, allowing non-lawyers on a limited number of cases. Maha Kamal is an attorney who's shaping this program, and she spoke with my colleague, Anthony Cotton. So how much does it cost to get a divorce in Colorado? You know, if I could answer that with a specific amount, I think I could help a lot more people. It's it's expensive. It's very expensive. Some people end up paying around tens of thousands of dollars to get divorced. And it's just cost prohibitive for most Coloradans to be able to pay that much. So under this program, how much would be saved? We don't have any exact estimates on that. Um, I would encourage any listeners to uh, look up Utah, which has been a great model for us in terms of where this program is going. So we're looking at estimate of anywhere between $50 to $100 an hour for LLPs, depending on their experience, but substantially lower than the tens of thousands of dollars it would cost for divorce or custody right now with an attorney. And you use the term LP. We'll talk about that. Sure. So let's let's talk about this program specifically. What's the genesis of it? What's its official name? And and indeed, how did it come to be? The group that we're targeting here or intend to address the needs of are the 80%, upwards of 80% of litigants. And most of them would qualify for net marital assets of $200,000 or less. That's homes, cars. Yes, yes. It does not include pensions. So that we intentionally did, for example, if you have educators that have a para, they're still going to struggle with, you know, paying for a lawyer tenths of thousands of dollars. So the details are included in our executive summary that is available online at the Colorado Supreme Court if anyone's interested. Um, 
This is the subcommittee of the Colorado Supreme Court, and the official name of the subcommittee is PALS, which stands for Paraprofessional and Legal Services. And this is the second round, so to speak, of that subcommittee. The initial committee, PALS 1, I'll refer to it, was developed in uh, 2015. And at that time, the Colorado Supreme Court had general interest in looking into limited licensure of paraprofessionals, but it didn't really know where it wanted to go with that. So this first subcommittee in 2015 was tasked with that initial investigation. And they looked into domestic relations or family law, but ultimately placed their focus on landlord-tenant. The Supreme Court said, you know, we don't think landlord-tenant is the primary focus here. Let's look at domestic relations. And by the end of 2019, early 2020, um, that is when they reached out to me and also my co-chair, who's the Honorable Retired Angela Arkin, Judge Arkin, to co-chair the second round, which is PALS 2, focused primarily on domestic relations, family law. And that started up in 2020, right before the pandemic. And so, like you said, they made the switch from landlord-tenant to domestic cases. Is that because of the number of people you could help, or was there another reason? Yes, they they being the Supreme Court justices who've been incredible in terms of their support, unanimous support for this initiative. They decided that family law was the main practice area that needed the most help. We're looking at upwards of 70 to 80 percent of Coloradans going into the family law system without any representation. And so there was a more immediate need in that practice area. Uh, Other states like Utah, Arizona, Washington was the first one, all focused also on family law. I know some of these states have incorporated other practice areas, but family law tends to be the one that most everybody's familiar with and needs help with. You've mentioned Supreme Court a couple of times. They are the ones who, in essence, oversee the yes. bar legal legal issues in Colorado. So this would fall under their purview. Yes. So the Colorado Supreme Court governs the practice of law. And so this program falls within its purview. Uh, it also... Um, licenses attorneys and oversees the practice of law. So it makes sense that the LLP program would fall under their authority and governance. Like you said, most people do it without an attorney. I would think if someone offered help, I would still be skeptical about the idea that you're not an attorney. Why Why would I do this with you? Sure. They are, a, they are an attorney, a limited practicing attorney. They do practice law and they have to go, they being LLPs, which is what we call them in Colorado. So that's licensed legal paraprofessional. You hear different variations of that depending on the state. So LLPs have to go through rigorous qualifications and training. Um, You do have to have uh, academic requirements, um, which we're still developing. So for example, either a certificate from a accredited paralegal studies program. We're working, for example, with the Arapahoe Community College to bring them on board. Uh, Or you have to have a master's in legal studies or also a Juris Doctor. So there might be people who went to law school that don't want to practice the full scope of law and want to get into limited licensure. So there are the academic requirements and they're similar to law school, but not the full 
blown law school track. Um, and then you have to do 1,500 hours of training. You have to take a rigorous bar exam. or It's similar to a bar exam, um, also an ethics exam, which is also what attorneys sit for. So it's not a, a walk in the park. It's going to be really, really difficult. Um, and we, we intentionally made it that way to make sure that the people that we are licensing are on par with attorneys. Uh, you know, there's always going to be some skepticism. This is something new. New is kind of scary sometimes, and there's uncertainty there. Um, I think in many ways, the first state to even explore this concept of limited licensure, uh, Washington had many of those struggles. But generally, I think people are really excited about it. So it's not necessarily former teachers or... Yeah, I've I've heard about that. Uh, no, it's not. You don't do a you know a handful of hours watching an attorney and then go open up shop somewhere. This is going to take some time. Um, you know, fifteen hundred hours with uh, supervision of an attorney, getting your legal or paralegal studies certificate, or having a master's in legal studies that costs money as well, um, and that requires time and commitment. And apart from divorce, Mm -hmm. what other kind of family law issues might these non-lawyers provide? That's a great question, Anthony. And I I do want to talk a little bit about the scope because I get a lot of questions about that. So at the moment, this is for family law and family law is generally divided into two types of cases that would um, you could file in Colorado court. So one is divorce, either with children or without. And the second is allocation of parental responsibilities, which is a mouthful, but essentially means custody. And underneath that umbrella are three types of um, cases. Either you have child support, parenting, time, or decision-making, or all three, depending on your specific case. So LPs have a limited scope. They can't go to court. They, they can go to court to support their clients and answer any factual questions for the judge, but they're not going for trial. They can't go to hearing. Um, there is a cutoff there that we've established. Uh, but, you know, the, all the in-between, the mediation, filing the paperwork, guiding the client through what's happening next, we anticipate LPs would be addressing that. They don't do all legal questions or legal cases. So if it's a complex jurisdictional matter that involves two states or even, you know, internationally, that is not something that we and uh, an LP would be able to assist with. Uh, I also mentioned the asset cap is at 200,000 net marital assets. So if it's beyond that, an LP could not uh, be on that case. Now, if it's discovered later that this marriage, for example, has more than 200,000, then a judge could step in and decide whether uh, it would be appropriate for the LLP to move forward. But they can help with child support. They can help with simple custody cases. And, and I don't mean that to undermine how emotional and, you know, impactful a custody case is, but there are some that parties agree. The parents agree, hey, I want to do a parenting plan. I need help finalizing that. So LPs could help with that. Right now, it is not expanded into more complex areas like adoption, but this is solely for simple divorces and simple custody matters. And the attorneys aren't feeling like, well, this is going to take money out of my pocket. I think some of them are. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings that who we're, this isn't um, an LP versus lawyer situation. This is nothing versus an LLP. Um, And so the people that, and the cases that we are focused on, that 80%, I keep saying 80%, but it's about 70 to 80%, they're not 
seeking legal representation and they don't have lawyers. And this is not the same clientele that most family law practitioners are ever going to crossroads with. Colorado definitely did lean heavily on Utah. And the numbers, I get this a lot, concerns. LPs are going to take over the jobs of lawyers. And the numbers don't support that. So for example, Utah has now for a few years had their program. And as of today, there's 23 licensed um, LPPs, as they call them in Utah. And so the same with Arizona, I believe it's at about 17 to 20 individuals that are licensed. Um, So we don't anticipate this taking over anybody's job. In fact, we anticipate this will complement and support the work of lawyers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Anthony Cotton, and I'm speaking with Maha Kamal. She's a Denver attorney and a proponent of a new program that would allow non-attorneys to try simple family law cases like divorce. It seems like having, let's even say, 30 of these folks would not be enough to... That's a good observation, yeah. Yeah. So why not have more than why limit it? I think that we want to mirror the rigorous training and qualification requirements for attorneys. You know, there's there's a um, focus on integrity and focus on the bar and the practice generally. Right. So um, if you're committed to the the program and you want to get trained and qualified, then you put in the work. Right. And so um, the people that are coming out of this program and getting qualified can really complement lawyers and, and, and stand with them. Right. And that's not a bad thing. And I think it should help quell any concerns that attorneys have that there'll be, you know, droves of LOPs coming through. I don't anticipate that at all. We're going to have very well qualified, committed individuals to supporting the practice, limited practice of law and family law. You also said that this will help ease caseloads for judges. Explain that to me. Yeah. So when these litigants end up in court, the judge is going above and beyond their role as a fact finder. Now they have to guide the litigants generally through the process, explain the process of law to them, what kind of paperwork they may need to fill out. And they themselves as judges are limited because they can't give legal advice in that neutral role. And so it's creating confusion and chaos within the system when the courts have this additional burden of trying to guide the 70 to 80 percent coming before them, not just on the law and what to do, but then also their specific case. So our intention is is that LLPs will come in and help alleviate that burden by explaining to the average person, okay, this is how divorce works. This is the paperwork that you need to fill out. Don't talk about this. This is not relevant to your case, even though you may feel passionate about it, um, and so on and so forth. So they're coming in to help the judges. And so they're the litigants are really coming into court and and saying, my wife has been cheating on me. Yeah. And, you know, actually, Anthony, uh, Colorado is a no-fault state. So unfortunately, the judges don't want to hear about that. They sometimes express sympathy. Okay, I get that this relationship fell apart because of some sort of, you know, infidelity or so on and so forth, but that's not relevant in court. And so that is frustrating, I think, all for the bench as well as the litigants when they have that miscommunication of what they're supposed to be talking about and what they're supposed to present to the court. And, and you're saying that judges' caseloads are literally in the hundreds. They are. They are. I mean, I, I 
I wouldn't be surprised if it's over four or 500 cases per judge in any given county in, in Colorado. And how could they be expected to work? The I don't know, but they are amazing at doing it. And whatever we can do to support their work and their staff, uh, this is one of the initiatives that we're moving forward with. What are the next steps in the process? And when might we see LPs working in Colorado? We anticipate rolling out the program sometime in 2024. Uh, The program is actually up for public comment right now. What I mean by that is the Supreme Court has published uh, the implementation proposal that our subcommittee had submitted um, for public comment. So this, I encourage anybody who's interested to take a look at that implementation proposal and submit feedback to the Supreme Court. Uh, for consideration. Once we get through that period and hopefully have this implementation proposal approved, we're looking at probably sometime in 2024. Thanks for joining us. Of course. It was a pleasure being here. Denver attorney Maha Kamal leads a new initiative to train people, non-lawyers, to assist in family law cases like divorce. She spoke with Colorado Matters senior producer Anthony Cotton. When we come back, a connection you might not have considered summer camp, and climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On the banks of the Colorado River, a summer camp hosts kids with serious illnesses. Climate change hasn't made the task any easier, but it has revealed lessons that could help other camps adapt and just maybe preserve a tradition of summers spent outside. CPR Sam Brash reports. It's getting warmer at Roundup River Ranch outside Gypsum, Colorado. The camp is a collection of yurts and buildings packed into a narrow valley. There's not a lot of trees for shade. So before it gets too hot, one cabin of kids decides to go fishing. And seriously, seconds after I show up. Fish! A fish! Oh, that's a big one! 16-year-old Lorelai Kinzer cheers on a friend as she reels in a trout. Kinzer had been fishing earlier, even caught one, but now she's taking a break. Before I got my brain tumor, I didn't care what the weather was like. I'd be outside all the time. Now I just have to be cautious because if I spend too much time outside long term, it makes me overheat and I could faint, but thankfully that hasn't happened. The weather is a big concern this week. Sterling Leha, the camp's director of operations, says every camper has either a cancer diagnosis or a blood disorder. A lot of the medications that these campers might be on Um, can make them uh, particularly sensitive to the heat and to the sun. So we're making sure that these kids have plenty of rest, lots of water, access to shade. Summer camps across the country have felt the impacts of climate change. In Michigan, camps are seeing more floods and dangerous algae blooms. East Coast camps are finding more ticks on kids. In Colorado, there's the looming threat of wildfires and wildfire smoke. And it's hotter everywhere. Leha says illness puts her campers at greater risk to many of those threats. And so Roundup River Ranch has had to shift gears just a little bit faster. And so I I do think there is great value in lessons that that our traditional summer camps can learn from medical camps. 
One of those lessons, make it really easy for kids to stay hydrated. Over the last few years, the campus added more and more coolers of ice water. There's now one around almost every corner. Here you guys are pretty serious about like keeping people hydrated. Yeah, I'm always drinking water. Camper Destiny Tattoo fills a plastic bottle after a dance activity. She's gotten pretty particular about her beverages. I can only drink water when it has ice in it or like unless it's cold. Is that, are those yeah. sufficiently cool water? Yeah, Like you approve? Great. Yeah, I approve. Destiny approves. (laughs) Another climate adaptation is easier to miss. It's a small plastic dome on the side of one building. It's about the size of a softball, so it connects to Wi-Fi and communicates live time information on air quality. Leha says camp uses the information to reassure parents their kids are safe playing outside. And more importantly, that our medical staff can use to pre-treat and to take care of campers proactively. That might mean arming more kids with inhalers if there's smoke in the air, or if it gets bad enough, moving all activities inside. Dr. Anthony Gerber is a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver. He says clear air quality data and protocols can help camps make better decisions and avoid depriving kids of time outside, something that's also critical for their health. We don't want to constantly be sounding the alarm and eliminating you know, kids' ability to engage in beneficial outdoor activity. And, and we just need to be very mindful that there are thresholds where maybe that, that balance changes. Finding that balance is tricky. Other Colorado camps I spoke to have detailed wildfire evacuation plans, but they're just starting to think about heat and poor air quality. In Denver, day camps are moving afternoon activities indoors to avoid ozone pollution. Coming to camp basically showed me humanity is very sacred. Finn Mott is a 20-year-old program leader and former camper at Roundup River Ranch. He says it's ahead of the curve because it pays careful attention to vulnerability, to what each kid needs to be healthy so they won't lose out on paddling canoes, shooting arrows, or singing with friends. You don't have to be perfect to be normal here, and that vulnerability is a powerful force, um, and camp embraces that and welcomes that. A force he thinks doesn't just apply to campers here. As climate change gets worse, healthier kids won't be spared from heat or bad air, and camps will need to adapt. Roundup River Ranch, he says, might be able to show them how. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We have our next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's the latest from nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. He contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art in his new book, Tracing Time. He celebrates the ancient communication on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. Childs weaves his conversations with elders, scholars, and friends into the narrative. You can pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join us September 6th in Grand Junction. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tracing Time by nature and adventure author Craig Childs. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a filmmaker who felt like she never fit in until she made a place for herself. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. That's part of the joy of listening to music and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. 
five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast Music Blocks is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Growing up, Denise Soler Cox was lonely. Her parents were Puerto Rican and the dominant culture in her town was white. It wasn't until she moved away that she realized there was a whole community of people who feel just like her. The Colorado-based filmmaker shares her story with May Ortega in CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We? Growing up on the border in South Texas, sometimes I felt like I was part of two different worlds. Maybe you can relate. Home life fue un mundo mexicano a world filled with flavors of my parents' home country. Meanwhile, my school life and the rest of the world outside of home was a slightly more American world. We were expected to speak English, know about the big American movie stars, popular American shows, things like that. And on paper, having a foot in both those worlds sounds pretty cool, like having a little bit of everything. But it's not that simple. Denise Soler Cox knows what I mean. One of the things I used to resent as a kid is when people say, would say, you have the best of both worlds, Denise. You're the best of both. And I would feel like, but I don't feel like that. Why don't I feel like the best of both? Yeah. It took a long time for Denise to find her community. The people who made her feel like she had the best of both worlds. And when she finally did, she knew what she had to do make a film about this community. With little knowledge and no connections to the film industry, she set out on a 17-year journey where she learned how to help people tell their stories and discover the power of her own story. From Colorado Public Radio, this is Quien Are We? Exploring what it means to be mestice or boricua or latino or however you identify and diving into the beautiful things that make us who we are. I'm May Ortega. Denise Soler Cox is... I'll just let her tell you how she identifies. Um, I think it's it so depends on what space I'm in, I have to say. Yeah, and okay. so um, in front of Latinos, I'm a Boricua. Nice. Um, in front, in a room of allies, I'm Latina. And if they're more curious, I'll get into it. So then when someone asks you where you're from, what do you say to them? Well, when I was younger, I would not know how to answer the question. And I always feel trepidatious because I didn't know if I felt safe answering the truth, which was I wanted to say Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. even though I technically wasn't born there. Um, And then, you know, as I get older, I feel like I identify as a New Yorker. But yeah, it all depends on the audience. That's kind of a funny thing. Denise was born in 1970, at a time when the Puerto Rican population in New York City was exploding, mostly in Harlem and the Bronx. Denise's New York was one where Puerto Ricans were inventing salsa music and the New Yorican Poets Café. Orgullo Borincano, or Boricua Pride, among these first and second generation Caribeños was strong. The culture was strong. 
But before little Denise could fully absorb all that it was to be Nuyorikenya, her parents moved the family, with her two older brothers in tow, to Westchester, New York, a predominantly white, affluent suburb to the north. Definitely didn't hit the same way. So it was... It's funny, looking back as an adult, it, it was so beautiful. It was really Americana at its finest. Mm. And while living there, um, it was incredibly challenging from an identity point of view. I didn't know where I fit in. I found Westchester to be beautiful in hindsight, but during it was quite challenging. Denise was bullied a lot as a kid in Westchester. As an adult, she made a recording where she told her brother for the first time about why living in Westchester was so tough for her. But yeah, I, did, I had to deal with it a lot. Wow. Yeah. In school? Yeah. First day, seventh grade, and we're sitting in the back of homeroom. We're like, oh my God, we're in homeroom. This is so exciting. And we have all of our books and everything. And then this girl walks in the room and she's got like tons of makeup on and her hair's like hairsprayed out and her clothes are tight. And then like behind her was like this posse of girls and they all look the same. And I'm like, these girls look scary. And they all stopped right in front of me. And the girl goes, good morning. And that was the beginning of a very difficult four-year span that actually happened every single day for four years. To cope, Denise began to adopt more of the suburban culture that surrounded her. But trying to fit in at school caused other problems. I didn't quite fit in at home. Well, I didn't quite fit in as a Latina and within my own familial group, right? Okay. Uh, because I didn't speak Spanish perfectly fluently. And, I feel that. Right? Yeah. And, um, and then also, too, because I was starting to let go of my roots, mm-hmm. uh, meaning I was starting to adopt some more, I call them self-reliant kind of tendencies mm-hmm. and uh, being more independent thinking for myself, which separated me from my family. And in hindsight, I was trying to figure out who I was in the context of inside my house felt like Puerto Rico and then outside felt like the United States. Between her struggles with identity and the bullying at school, growing up was hard for Denise. And then the universe decided to pile things on and make things even harder. And this time it affected her family, too. So when I was 13, my dad, um, on April Fool's Day, we always used to, you know, my dad was a very funny guy. He was the guy that you could count on to make everybody laugh, right? He was the one that, you know, if he was there, then we were definitely going to have fun kind of person, right? And it was my father. Mm -hmm. And so on April Fool's Day, I I would always do the sugar and the salt thing. I, um, I did the switch the night before and then the next morning went into the kitchen and um, I'd always find my dad eating his English muffins on paper towel mm-hmm. and he wasn't there and uh, my mom wasn't there either and uh, what happened in the, in the subsequent weeks is that he didn't come home. He had um, stage four Hodgkin's disease all over his body and um, that diagnosis came in June mm-hmm. and then he died in the beginning of August. In the blink of an eye, 
Denise went from having a traditional family unit like most of her peers to suddenly losing her father. It deepened her struggles with identity, yet another tick into the imaginary column of why she could never fit in. And despite her grief, the bullying at school never stopped. Now Denise felt completely alone. In her sadness and loneliness, she decided to turn to her roots, connect to them, but in a different way than she was used to. She had to be more intentional. So in high school, Denise traveled to Spain, where she soaked up the culture, the language, everything that she could over a month. I stayed with a family, okay. and um, and I was to go to the school every single day to finish learning Spanish. Whoa. And um, it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life because I experienced myself um, tuning into the Spanish that was already there, hmm. right? I came back dreaming in Spanish and speaking Spanish, and in Spain... People didn't ask me where I was from. In Spain, the name Soler isn't a weird name. It's actually really vanilla and boring, like like the most typical names here in the United States, right? There was yeah. nothing special or different about me. And I picked up all of the kind of cultural nuances very easily. So I came back just so confident, so in my power, right? Denise was ready to take on life with her newfound confidence. She was processing her grief, embracing who she was. Life was good. Then, tragedy struck the family again. And, um, and then my brother was killed in a drunk driving accident. He was... Um, 18. Oh. And, um, you know, when things like that happen to a human being, it's very easy to, to come to the conclusion that, you know, which is the conclusion that I came to, which was I'm, a, I'm an unlucky person. Denise kept this idea to herself like a secret. It festered as she got older. For years, she yearned to be a different version of herself, someone who's part of something big and hopeful. But she didn't know how to get there. Until one day, over drinks with friends, something in Denise cracked open. More on that after the break. The Arikaree River runs out of northeast Colorado into Kansas and cuts the state's lowest elevation, 3,315 feet. It's the highest low spot of any state in the country, higher than the highest points of 18 of them. Flowing from the high plains, the Arikaree River is named for the Arikara, Native Americans whose oral history tells of a long journey crossing canyons, fording streams. With hot summers, cold winters, and sudden outbursts of rain and snow, the High Plains serves up some of Colorado's most severe weather and creates an environment unlike what's downstream the Arikaree River. In fact, scientists call the Arikaree the state's best remaining example of a Great Plains river system with uncommon plants, amphibians, reptiles, and fish, like the three-inch-long orange-throat darter, 
at the very western edge of its comfort zone in the lowest spot of Colorado. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Dazzle Jazz in Denver. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to the story of Colorado filmmaker Denise Soler Cox. As the daughter of Puerto Rican parents growing up in a predominantly white New York neighborhood, she experienced years of bullying and personal loss. Here again is May Ortega, host of CPR's new podcast, Quien Are We? After high school, Denise Soler Cox finally left Westchester, the home of all her childhood tragedy. By her early 20s, she was working as a graphic designer living in Miami. Things were starting to look up. She'd made many good friends. And one night, they were all hanging out. And everything changed. So I was out at a bar with a bunch of friends. (laughs) And it was really just like any other night. There wasn't anything particularly interesting about the night. It was just like a night of joking and, and laughter. Love it. And then the night took a little bit of a turn, uh, meaning like we started, uh, we stopped joking and and someone said something serious and someone said something that kind of tapped into ni de aquí ni de allá, right? Without Mm -hmm. saying that, because I don't even know if that was a saying back then. This is the 90s. And this phrase means that you feel like you're not from one space or another, usually culturally is what we're referring to. Yes. And, um, And someone said something that pointed to the fact that they had experienced the same thing. And I was like a little bit in a state of shock because my experience with this, I could never put into words. It was hardly in my conscious, let alone communicate, right? And we began to share stories that only confirmed this, layers and layers of stories and things I could identify with and immediately thought, I need to make a movie about this. And with no training in filmmaking, no desire up until that point ever to make a movie, I started writing on napkins. I was like, wait, what did you say? Oh my gosh, yes, I have to include that. And nobody at the table knew I was making a movie. They just knew I was writing the stuff down, right? (laughs) And so by the end of the night, I had my stack of napkins and I got in my car and I drove down I-95 South to Coconut Grove in Miami where I lived with the four windows down, like, air air swooshing into my car like oh my god I'm a filmmaker this is amazing like I was so excited for this life that I just designed for myself right at this table at a bar with a bunch of friends wow because I knew deep down that if I could actually pull this off that I could heal millions of hearts and Rewinding back to my childhood, this is so only something I can understand now as an adult. But as a kid, I used to tell myself, I'm going to do something really great with my life one day. And all of this that's happening, everything that I can't, like, I could hardly deal with it as a kid, you know, that it would all lead to something amazing. So I was driving in my car. I'm like, see, I knew it. (laughs) I knew I was meant to do something great. And this is what that is. And um, I always have a joke about this that, um, you know, there's the angel that's like, yeah, woo, yes, we're doing this. (laughs) And then the devil 
like, who the hell do you think you are to do this? You know, mm-hmm. all those things. You have no film. You don't know anything about it, making films, right? And yeah. um, That's and self-doubt then, talking to you. Oh, my gosh, yeah. yeah. And then if you're Latino, you have your mother, you know, saying all the things oh that your gosh. mother says. <laughs> so by the time, it was like a 30-minute drive, but by the time I got home, I had convinced myself I wasn't good enough to do it. So Denise filed her dream away just as that, a dream. And it took 17 years from that point to actually have the guts to make a single phone call. During those 17 years, she got married, started a family, and built a career in marketing. And by that point, she'd accomplished so much But her biggest ambition had yet to be realized. Every January 1st, I am writing my goals down and I have my to-do list and you might mistake me for extremely type A, you know? And, um, And so there I was writing my goals and I put down, make movie. That's what I would always write. Every year. Do it this year. Yeah. Every year for 17 years, just make movie, make movie, make movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I realized, wow, I'm full of poop. (laughs) Like, what am I doing writing this again? I know I'm never going to do this. And so really what it was was the things that held me back from like really participating and fully living my life were also the things that held me back from making this film. So instead of assigning herself the overwhelming task of make movie on her annual to-do list, Denise wrote two other words instead. Call Claire. Claire was only an acquaintance, but Denise knew one very important thing about her. Claire's neighbor was Henry Onsbacher, an Emmy-winning and Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker. Denise picked up the phone. She called Claire. Then she worked her magic and landed herself a huge break, a pitch meeting with Henry she'd finally get her chance to share her idea with an industry professional. And then the day that I was supposed to meet him, I dropped my kids off. I took a shower, which was very unusual for me because I had two toddlers in preschool, you know. And so I took a shower. I did my hair. I got dressed. I mean, like, this is significant. And all the moms were like, excuse me, what are you up to today? Where are you going? Right. And uh, and I remember rushing to my car and saying, I have an appointment. I'm pitching. I'm pitching on a movie idea that I have. And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, Where you never mentioned this. From? Yeah. And um, jump in the car and had one voicemail on my phone, and it was from Henry. Mm-hmm. And he said, Denise, I'm so sorry. I won't be able to meet with you today. And even if we did meet, I would only have like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I called him back so damn fast. And I said, Henry, I just got your message. 
I will take the 20 minutes. I am right around the corner. See you in a few minutes. Let's do this. And I was not around the corner. I was leaving the preschool. I was at least 15 minutes away if I drove like 90 miles an hour. And I got there. I pitched my heart out at the 40-minute mark. His assistant was knocking on the window like, what are you doing? You have a call. And I remember when we walked out of the building and he said, how serious are you about making this film? Uh, because it's a lot of work and it costs a lot of money. And I said, you don't know me, Henry, but hopefully you'll have a chance. We'll have a chance to get to know each other. But if it takes me the rest of my life, I will do this. Henry saw something in Denise, but before he committed to her project, he asked her to work on his current film so he could get to know her better. And so I got a chance to work side by side with him. I got a chance to see what it was like to um, be in the theatrical production part of making a film. A year later, Henry was all in on Denise's idea. Their project was finally moving along nicely, but then they hit a major roadblock. Yeah, so one of the things that um, happened was that I grossly underestimated how long I would need to survive like on our savings. I just had no idea. And one month we were just doing the math, my husband and I, and realized we weren't going to be able to pay all of our bills, including our rent. Oh, my God. And I like immediately knew what we needed to do and and suggested it to him, not knowing how he felt about it. Um, and that was to sell our wedding rings. Gosh. As difficult as it was to make that decision and to actually do it, thank God we had them to sell because it it helped like stitch together a little bit more time to get to the next milestone, you know? Yeah. Um, the hardest part of that experience was um, going to different pawn shops in Denver and uh, and then like handing my ring over and then them telling us what it was worth. And we had to walk in with our kids and who were very young at the time and it was humiliating. And it was, um, I, I really, really um, questioned what the heck I was doing. Like what kind of person does this? Her sacrifice paid off, literally. The money from the rings helped move things forward. Soon, Denise and Henry began recording interviews. The project was called Being Enya. Enya is also that letter N in the Spanish alphabet with the little tilde over it. For Denise, the project was about telling other people's stories, but her co-creator recognized the power of Denise's story. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I remember the day that he said, Denise, I think that we need to tell the story through your life. We need to, you need to be the main character of this film. And I was like, hell no. <laughs> That's not what you had hell in mind. Hell to the no, no. Yeah. Like what? I like spent, I like, cause that means I knew, I knew what it meant. I knew it meant me sharing stuff that I wasn't ready to share, me being willing to talk about things that I really wasn't interested in talking about. I wanted other people to talk about those things and capture it and make this incredible story. 
Henry insisted that Denise was one of those people. And as they traveled across the country, interviewing hundreds of Enyes, learning about their own struggles, Denise began to feel less alone, like maybe she could tell her story, just like them. It took me a long time to figure out who I am. I am an Enye. Enye! No, it's not a cult or part of some new age movement. It's a group of people here in the United States that is 16 million strong and growing. A group of people that found themselves stuck between two worlds because they were born in the United States to parents who were born in Spanish-speaking countries. Sometimes we don't feel Latino enough, and sometimes we don't feel American enough. But we are both. We are Enyes, sandwiched between two cultures, navigating an uncharted road. This is our story. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like you. This has been a very emotional journey for you. Yeah. Um, and in the film, there's a lot of emotional moments, mm-hmm. and one of them is when actor Luis Guzman, yeah, when he's talking about his his daughters, mm-hmm. he gets real emotional. Uh, did that? Does this happen a lot when you're talking to people about these kinds of things about identity, family, all this stuff? Do people get emotional? often muhair every time really i i'd be hard pressed to think of a time where it didn't happen and so these things that are hurtful and difficult and challenging it's like we have a place yeah and the bottom drawer all the way in the back uh i never opened that drawer and here i am saying knock knock you want to talk about this how did it feel for you show me your drawer pull it all out put it all out there. And then I would share, and Henry said, you have such a unique interview style, how you share about your experience before they talk. And I see that that's the way in. And that's what I would do, because I know it's hard to talk about these things. And I know if if I show you my drawer, that maybe you might show me yours, you know, and yeah. if I say this hurt me, and this is what I went through, and really replicate what happened at the bar that night, mm-hmm. really just share these things and see like is it also true for you and it always is it always is denise and henry completed being enya in 2016 and began screening it across the country they successfully created a film that unites people in their shared experience of latinidad brownness and the complexities that come with it how did creating this film change how you feel about yourself and your own identity it it helped me making this film gave me the gift of being able to forgive myself for all that I believed was deficient and not good enough Hmm. like I spent a lifetime in the practice of um, locking those emotions away and it just so happens that unlocking that and letting it out is what made it all work Mm-hmm. And I found freedom in that. I found uh, I found a Denise that I loved. Let's start the interview off with saying your full name. My name is Guadalupe Olvera Hurt. I am Saida Rivera. Christopher Reeve Linares. I am Charles Carpenter. Hey, my name is Luis Guzman, member of the universe. My name is Richard Montoya. Edwin Torres. Hi, I'm Enyes are pretty common around the globe. I'm one. Maybe you're one too. 
It's a great thing to be, if I do say so myself. Denise Soler Cox is a Boricua filmmaker from New York City, based in Denver. She and her business partner, Henry, continue to produce films that tell our stories. You can find a link to her documentary film, Being Enye, on our website and in the show notes. Thank you, Denise, for opening up to me and telling your story of perseverance and belonging. I'm May Ortega. CPR's new podcast, Kien Arwi. Follow this and all of the episodes everywhere you get your podcasts and online at CPR.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.